Hello everyone and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today I'm going to be talking to a good friend of mine who's been on this show several times and that's Nivu Brain. Many of you will recognize her as one of the most prominent pro-life activists in Ireland for decades now. She played a key role during the Save the Eighth campaign in 2018 fighting Ireland's abortion referendum. I actually I write a lot about her story in my book, uh, Patriots, The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement. And we had her on the show to talk about that book, about that campaign, to discuss how Ireland actually legalized abortion. And so what we're going to be talking about uh, with Neve today, actually, is a documentary that just released called The Abortion Deception, The Inside Story of the Fall of Ireland's Pro-Life Law. And it, it aired on uh, September 21st online. It's available on, on YouTube and Vimeo. It really is a phenomenal documentary that gets at all of the different ways that the elites conspired to ensure that abortion would be legalized. And by elites, I'm referring to the media. I'm referring to every major political party in Ireland. The various ways that the pro-life message was suppressed and the abortion message amplified. And this, this really was... The documentary was actually difficult for me to watch. I watched it with my wife just because it was a reminder again of how beautiful the pro-life campaign to save the eighth was and what a what a horrifying injustice and what a tragedy it was that the abortion activists ended up triumphing at the end of the day. And so I really want to encourage all of you to watch this documentary. And here's my conversation with Neve about what went into the film, what the film covers and what pro-lifers should understand about operating in this new and digital world. So first question is, it's been a couple of years now since the referendum. And how did this documentary come about? Because it's, yeah, it's, 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 sev- it's several years in. And is this documentary several years in the making? Or how did the project Genesis? Well, it kind of is, isn't, I suppose, um, <laughs> is a short answer. Um, I think everybody understood that the documentary needed to be made, much in the same way that everybody understood that your book, Patriots, needed to be written. Because one of the motivations for undertaking the documentary is to set the historical record straight. You know, because just as I think you said, Jonathan, in the documentary, you know, there's this narrative being created by the media about how the, the referendum or the eighth was repealed by these, you know, I think you said plucky conservatives and feminists fighting the machine. Of course, they were the machine. All the pluck was on the side of the amazing pro-life volunteers who were there night after night for years and totally tried to face down the establishment and did for a long time to, to save so many babies. So it needed to be made, I think, to set the historical record straight. It also needed to be made, I think, to draw together what we knew before the referendum, during the referendum, and after the referendum, in terms of what impacted on the vote. So, if you like, the documentary looks at three main things that really impacted heavily on the referendum, and then it looks at the kind of the cultural backdrop to those. And those three things, I think, were the media as campaigners, you know, media manipulation. They were uh, the creation of false narratives such as, for example, using the tragic death of Savita Halpanara in order, in order to try to create this atmosphere of fear where, where women felt unsafe because of the Eighth Amendment, even though that was not true. So the creation of all narratives. And then interference from big tech and from international forces, from incredibly powerful global forces who had huge amounts of money at their disposal, um, 
people who have been funded by people like George Soros and Chuck Feeney. And I think that, that information, a lot of it was kind of out there, but nobody had drawn it together. And what Tim Jackson um, and his crew did, uh, I think in a very, in an amazing way really, was they, they, they drew together all those threats and presented those factors to people and presented the evidence to the viewer and explained how these impacted so much on the Irish and the, on the mentality of Irish voters against the kind of cultural backdrop in relation to what was happening here, the change that was happening anyway, because the church had fallen out of favour, because people had kind of turned away from the values of their parents, because there this um, this notion of this mood, I think, had been created. Change was needed because of what had been done to women in the past or what had been done in this country in the past, even though they didn't, they didn't have anything to do with the question at hand, which was abortion. And so I think the service that Tim and his crew have done to us is that they have left us now with an historical record that is accurate and correct and comprehensive. But they've also shone a light on some of the interference from big tech, which I think a lot of people were unaware of. And like the kind of feedback we're getting in relation to the documentaries that people were saying, gosh, you know, I knew at some stage in the referendum that Google banned all of the ads. I didn't realize that it only really impacted the no side because of course the media were completely on the yes side's pockets and were actually running the campaign for the yes side. And I didn't realize that other things were also happening in the background. And of course, we didn't realize it either, Jonathan. We only realized it when it came out long after the referendum. And there are things um, like the what we now know about Google's blacklist. We know this because of a whistleblower who spoke to Project Veritas and who explained that Google during the abortion referendum had drawn up blacklist of terms and some people looked at the blacklist of terms and they thought oh well there's you know pro-life search terms on it and there's pro-abortion search terms on it and there's kind of maybe neutral search terms like Sunita Hanukkah for example like maternal mortality like um, abortion rates stuff like that what they didn't realize was how Google was manipulating those search terms so when if you if you if you were a confused voter in the weeks before the vote and you looked up Sunita Hanukkah or maternal mortality or the eighth amendment Google brought you to the um, answers they wanted you to see. And that's how that was such a powerful interference, you know, because they brought you then to the mainstream media, to everybody who was campaigning, who was on the side of the yes uh, campaign in, in the referendum. And that's why that was such a serious interference in democracy, which has never been uh, addressed by the authorities in this country. And he speaks to um, very interesting people like Professor Robert Epstein, who some of your listeners might recall from uh, parliamentary hearings or congressional hearings or Senate hearings, I think, in the, in the US. And Professor Epson has given uh, evidence uh, before these committees explaining how big tech is manipulating votes in regards to the elections and is generally manipulating them on the side of liberal causes or, or liberal politicians. And his evidence is very compelling and he talks about things that, again, that people would not have realized, such as that, that Facebook used something called a go vote reminder. And if they had aimed it only at the kind of seg seg um, segments of the voting population, which more, more, more likely to vote yes, that was a very powerful, unseen, unaudited, unaccounted for manipulation in the referendum. Now, one of the one of the things I, w I wanted to ask is because watching this documentary, a lot of the information I, I already knew because I, I had done the research and, and I'd interviewed you guys all before. I had read your guys's autopsy of, of the campaign. 
But there, there were a few, a few new details. And one of the things I was wondering is while you were putting all of this together, because you were one of the spokespeople for Save the Eighth and you were on the ground, and then you took sort of this aerial view of the campaign, was there anything that really surprised you in, in the creation of this documentary that you hadn't been aware of yet? The documentary took a while to make because things like COVID happened, which were you know, so annoying for everybody on every project that I've, that, that, that's been done by throughout the world. So that delayed things. And then we were kind of putting together, you know, the the how the, the timeline for the documentary or what the documentary, what, was, what should be part of the documentary, what was interesting, what should be in it. And things happened like the Google blacklist, blacklist came up. I think from, from me, some of the most interesting parts of the documentary are where People look at what has happened to Ireland and they talk of what we can do in the future. So you've got these wonderful contributions from people like Professor Jack Casey, from Dr. Joseph McCallig, from Tim himself, and from others. You know, they talk about the kind of the ebb and flow of culture and they talk about how it's so important to keep the path lit. And Dr. Joseph McCallig has, has this beautiful he, he um, quotes T.S. Eliot where he says, sometimes after all our searching, we come back to where we began and we see it again for the first time. You know, Tim talks about the fact that, you know, he asked this question, who should inherit this land? Should it be those of us who love our children or those of us who think it can dispose of them? And I think you have these, these kind of little insights, these kind of pinpricks of hope, especially near the, near the end of the documentary, because a lot of people who saw it, for the first time, and you can even imagine when you're involved in something, even though you know the creation of this is very little to do with me, it's to do with the Tim and the genius team we had. Um, it's still very upsetting to me every time I see it. You know, every time you see it, I said to someone to the day, I shed a tear at a different at a different stage of it every time because it's such a sad story. But you have got this this hope at the end. But it's also an overview, I think, of what happened to Ireland, and it's a very similar story as what happened to the rest of the world you know so i think what ireland was exceptional is that it withstood those forces for so long you know for 30 years after the rest of the western world i think it fallen to abortion and and in that saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of babies and that's and that's a wonderful thing but sometimes having you know there's a word a phrase in Irish like shasta and fold having kind of stood your ground for that long like the, 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 the fall then is all the more hurtful for those who tried so hard to keep the, to keep those values to the forefront. So I think, it, I don't know if anything really surprised me in making the documentary, except when you looked at it, looked, when it the way it encapsulates the campaign, what Ireland was, what Ireland has become and what it might be, it's very interesting. No, it's interesting. The way he ended the documentary was interesting to me because one of the things that stuck out to me from the documentary that I hadn't really examined in depth in the book was how he noted that globalization is a leveler of culture and how these these values that are foreign to many places are, are, are sort of getting imported. And, and one of the reasons that struck me is because I'm the sort of person who appreciates real diversity. I, like, I find Ireland like so interesting because of its Irishness the same way that like I love the Netherlands because of its Dutchness. And the things I like the least about Ireland and the Netherlands and France is the things that are global and the things that they've sort of brought in. I, I like the things that make it that make it very much unique. And so diversity is really interesting. When you hear diversity from the elites, what they mean is we wear different costumes and our accents are different, but we think all the same things. And that really kind of stood out to me, the internet as a leveler of culture. And I, and I was thinking a lot about this because just like you guys at Life Institute and the, and the various pro-life groups in Ireland, we in Canada and the U.S. have been experimenting with different forms of online research. 
uh, and outreach during the pandemic. And of course, this is a podcast that goes out online. But I've been thinking a lot that one of one of the mistakes that, that we make is by putting a lot of our eggs in the online basket because there really is no, there's no replacement for face-to-face interaction. There's no replacement for going over and talking to your neighbor rather than getting into a fight with him online. You can have a debate with, with people in your town on Facebook if you want, but the number of people who are willing to change their mind in black and white on the internet forever is, is very slim because human beings are human beings. And I'm wondering to what extent you think that uh, like watching what Google did, watching what the social media giants did, you realize like the, the, the fight for Ireland, just like the fight for Canada and, you know, the fight for, for, for Malta currently and all these places really is going to take place in, in human interactions, in actual cultural interactions rather than online, especially as we see that being cut off to us. Yeah, you're correct. And to be honest, that was always kind of the modus operandi in the pro-life groups here in Ireland, especially Defence and the Life Institute. And you saw that in the referendum where you had this huge emphasis on the life canvas going, going door to door, talking to people. And of course, one of the things that people had to deal with after the referendum was like, was it, did, it, did it not work? Did, it, did going door to door and talking to people and being as informed about the about the issue as you can be before you go to speak with them and being learning how to be persuasive was all of that for nothing. And the short answer is it, it wasn't for nothing. Because I think you've, those interactions are still important and people will remember them and they'll remember them especially as the, the real horror of the regime that has been established is now becoming more and, and more apparent. You, I think we have to remember that those conversations were occurring against a cultural shift that kind of overrode those personal interactions in some way, because you had, and everything in Ireland kind of hung on this, you had this enormous tipping point, which was the death of Savita Halepanaver. And that meant that the, persuas- the persuasion that can happen in a, in a conversation when you're being factual and informative and really genuinely talking to people about an issue is, is often kind of washed away when people are told repeatedly. And, and it is the power of the mainstream media who, who hang this on a very powerful narrative when they were told repeatedly that Savita died because she couldn't get an abortion. So if you like, the, the things that do work, that absolutely do work in, in creating cultural change, which is these powerful one-to-one interactions, just couldn't withstand the kind of sweeping cultural change that was being driven by, by that very powerful story. That is not to say that that's not how it will reverse itself. And I think if you look, and an interesting parallel is, I think, the spread of religion. Because most, you know, of if you look at Catholicism or Christianity in general or the other major religions in the world, if you look at Islam or, um, and there are, of course, other things come, come into play too, like demographics and stuff like that as well, especially more recently. But in general, these great evangelical movements, if you like, have happened talking to people one-to-one or in small groups, and that is how you've changed hearts and minds. And I, I agree with you, Jonathan. I think we are all in danger. And this is, goes for every moment of relying too much on social media and presuming that social media can be as persuasive as news reporting one-to-one conversations. Do you know, and I think we need to reverse a little bit, not ditch social media, even though we have seen in the referendum here in Ireland, I think Tim showed very clearly that there was this earthquake called Brexit and another one called Trump. And then big tech giants decided we can't let this happen again. And, then, and I do genuinely believe that Ireland was like a testing ground to see how you can 
behind the scenes interfere with the referendum or openly do so the way Google did because they were asked by the Yes campaign to stop the ads and they stopped them. You know, Ireland was a testing ground to see like how big tech could swing the balance, could take that power that conservatives or, those, or, or radicals, if you want to say Trump or Brexit, the kind of power they had, they had got from social media and bypassed them and I could take that back from them again. You know, I think what, what's happening now in Ireland is that we're kind of going back, I think slowly, because people need time to heal and to, to regroup and to gather to kind of say, okay, what, how do we design our campaigns? How do we design our message? How do we reach people? And not to presume that social media is a magic wand that you can wave and automatically be put in front of loads of people with the power to persuade them. You know, because there's two aspects there. Big tech, I think, want people to pay for everything anyway. So this huge reach that we once had in social media has been curtailed, but then it's also being curtailed because big tech doesn't like our message. And then you have to take into account what, what is more persuasive, you know, a video on social media or talking to somebody face to face? And how do you how do you judge that? You know, you guys are doing polling, good for you, because that's a really good way to tell what's working and what's not. And, you know, do, do you need both and do you need other avenues and design your campaigns in that way without just presuming you're going to you're going to reach everybody on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and there's going to be as impactive as as the old campaigning methods, you know, like with the ones that, that were used until this stuff was invented. That's a very interesting way of putting it because the great tragedy of, of, of the way things went down in the referendum from the digital blacklist point of view is that I really do believe storytelling in our culture is one of the most powerful ways of connecting with somebody and bringing them over to your side. And while I'm less and less enthused with social media also because it's so restricted to us because of shadow banning because of the blacklist and just just because i'm nervous to invest in something that i think is not going to be available to us in the long term that the second we build up these large followings the rug gets pulled out from underneath us so so to a degree i'm almost like even if it's really effective if we get too effective they're going to notice and then they're going to take the tool away from us because they don't want us to win but where I think social media does a better job uh, than than face to face is some of the some of the uh, every life count stories that were produced. A lot of the stories, like Vicky Wall, right, who talks about babies that the media cruelly called incompatible with life. Like those, I, I do think the only way you compete with a story like Savita's, the false narrative told about Savita, is with the story of of moms like Vicky Wall, who says. Each day, you know, I was pregnant with my baby was a day I got to spend with my baby. And you sort of need to fight emotional, visceral power with emotional, visceral power and put faces on the debate because they put a face on Savita. They put a face on the abortion debate and they very much prevented you guys from putting a face on your side when the stories that you had and have that I've seen are equally, if not even more powerful. They see precisely, and, and, I, and I don't get me wrong, I would never throw the baby out with the bathwater, and I do think social media absolutely and you know has that power, and people are very quick to share powerful stories on it, and it's, it's, it's in terms of time, in terms of why people use things like Facebook and Instagram, the stories are absolutely the most powerful way to go there, and I remember in the referendum too, we had these really compelling stories about women who had been in similar situations to Savita, who had sepsis or who, who had had um, cancer, because women, women were being told, you know, if you're sick and pregnant, you're not going to get help. And these women were, of course, the counter argument to that, but telling their powerful stories. And the, the Irish media largely didn't want to hear them. You know what I mean? But you're, you're correct. Like, but the power of social media was a great way, and it still is a great way outside of camp uh, referendums or, or votes to, sh to share all of those stories. But go back to what you said there, John, I thought it was so interesting. You were saying that 
everybody pretends to celebrate diversity, but like a lot of the forces pushing cultural change are these enormous global forces, you know, and you, ha you have, and this is, sometimes people I think get caught up in conspiracies, but what's not a conspiracy is that you have enormously wealthy individuals like George Soros and the Open Foundation, like Chuck Finney and the money poured into Ireland, you know, like the Center for Reproductive Rights and the huge wealthy backers they have from Bank of America to the Ford Foundation. You have these enormous global players and they don't actually want diversity, they want conformity. They want every country to have the same rules on all of these things. And in doing so, they're often overriding people's cultures. And I remember reading uh, Johnson uh, Haidt's book, you know, where he talks about people's values and the righteous mind. And he talks about how some American sociologists and psychologists, they've kind of had this presumption that, you know, all they were talking about the difference between kind of learned values and values that may be inherent to you. And they were presuming that what had happened in the American space was the same as everywhere else. And they went to other countries and they were like, oh gosh, you know, we might all be one humankind, but people often have vastly different cultures. And of course, some of those cultures can have very positive aspects like respect for the traditional family, respect for older people and protection of the unborn child. So what these huge global forces want, as you correctly say, is, is not diversity. They want us all to have the same laws and to conform. And they're in a way trying to replace not just your, va not just the, your values, but your culture with this appalling globalist culture, which is like Kim Kardashian, you know what I mean? Or something dross and crass and, and to be honest, ugly and awful and appealing always to the lowest common denominator, Cardi B, you know, mindless, dumbass movies. Like this is what kind of global culture is. Coca-Cola, McDonald's, right? Sorry, McDonald's, but you are, you know, all of this. And I think there needs to be an understanding it's a difficult thing to do, but it's all about shaping culture. You know, that being Irish used to be having a distinct culture, having a distinct, you know, accent, language, whatever, but also being proud of the fact that you did value families, babies, you know, the things that, that, that helped to keep your society strong. And that, that's not something that we should throw, throw away. I think when, when Professor Casey talked about this, like the ebb and flow of culture and that things become more liberal and more progressive, and there is a, a, a truth in that, but you have to fight, I think, to keep the culture alive. I don't think any culture restores itself without those who are fighting to keep it alive or keeping to, fighting to bring it back to what it once was, to make it, <laughs> to paraphrase Donald Trump, to make it great again. And it, it's, um, it's, they, we, you need to kind of get people to understand that they're better than this mindless globalist nonsense that's being sold to them as hashtag diversity, hashtag whatever. Do you know what I mean? Because there isn't anything diverse about it. We are, we are all just expected, you know, not to, not to love your country, not to love your faith, not to love what you are as, as a distinct people, but instead to just sign up to this meaningless nonsense where babies, you can kill ba a baby in the name of compassion. You can kill an old person in the name of compassion and men are not women and women are a lot of modern culture. Yeah, no, and that, that's that's very interesting. And, and we're going off on what I think is a is a is a meaningful and valuable tangent because it, it this situation, but it's replicating itself everywhere. And so, like 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 it's it's Irish, it's, it's Maltese. Like when you have 
that was the thing that struck me about being in Ireland for the referendum is that so many of the people were objectively offended by abortion because it was so un-Irish. It wasn't just that it was wrong. It's like, we don't do this. This is not part of our culture, which is very different from a very multicultural society like Canada, which is a country, not a nation, and doesn't have any kind of unified identity. Which, interestingly, is, is the sort of thing that a lot of leaders are pushing for. Like, what I found listening to Leo Varadkar, for example, is that it was, where is his peer pressure coming from? His peer pressure wasn't coming from the Irish people. It wasn't coming from Middle Ireland. Middle Ireland needed to be hectored and badgered and persuaded that it was time to move on because he was embarrassed to hang out with Macron and Trudeau and all of these people. And he was embarrassed to be the leader of people who had such backwards, unprogressive views. And they were the ones that he was getting his peer pressure from. And really, and I, I don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'll, I'll reiterate what you said. But part of me always goes back to something Tucker Carl Carlson has frequently said is you cannot govern a people you have contempt for. And Leo Varadkar really, really seemed to have contempt for those values. That mask really came off the last week. <laughs> Saying that didn't used to mean the same thing. But it really came off the last week when he really started pushing. He, he pretended to stay neutral. And then at the end of the week, it was like, no, 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 no. If we're not going to be a cruel backwards country, you know, we need to vote for love and compassion and, and openness. But what, what do you think about this this concept now of leaders like Varadkar and other leaders that have largely pro-life populations but end up pushing to change the culture because they're going to the EU and the UN and the G7 and all these all these places? And in fairness, it, it, it goes right across the political spectrum in Ireland, you know, where they have this overriding need to be the best boy in the class in regards to the European Union. And part of it, I think, is, is a colonial hang-up. It's this inferiority a complex they have, and they need to prove how progressive they are to the United Nations or to the European Union or to Hillary Clinton, you know, sitting there like with her head bowed while she chastises us about our pro-life laws, you know, and it's appalling, and part of it is is a, is a lack of belief in the Irish people, a lack of belief in the Irish in the Irish nation. You know, it, it, there's a parallel, again, in big tech interference, because you have the Yes campaign, the pro-abortion campaign in Ireland, and it's so interesting to see the, in the first Pat Lee of the Irish Times, he did report this, that they went to Google and they asked Google to stop uh, running the pro-life ads and that Google and Facebook were afraid that if the referendum failed, in other words, if abortion was not legalised, that they would be held to account for that. And like, who are Google and Facebook afraid of? Another way, like... The European Union, is it the United Nations? Is it like the, the, the powerful political establishment in, in the US and, and in other countries? Like they certainly aren't afraid of, of, the, of their users. They're not going to get any more of a backlash from Facebook users who support abortion than they are from those who, who are opposed to it. So you, you, you have this, this new hierarchy in the world where the politicians who are meant to be serving their own country care more about what these big international, often global organizations or gatherings think of them than what their own people think about them. And it was in interesting too, I think, because we, did we didn't make the documentary as a repost anything, but just before the documentary was finalized and aired, a couple of months before it, RTE, which is the main news, which is the main television station here in Ireland, and it's, it's taxpayer funded, they get like millions and millions every year, complete waste of our money. And they aired a documentary, which we found out had actually been paid for by the Irish taxpayer. There's a Screen Ireland, which is a statutory body here in Ireland, 
gave them 150,000 euros, a very considerable whack of cash, to make a documentary which was all about how wonderful the yes side were and how evil and terrible the Eighth Amendment was, the Pro-Life Amendment. And they also got money from George Soros, got money from the Ford Foundation. Like, it's, it's beyond a joke at this stage. So, we, you know, they, they just got huge whacks of cash to make this kind of bad documentary which was which followed around yes campaigners and you know showed how wonderful and kind-hearted and and super people they were and how evil the AIDS was and how what a glorious moment it was for Ireland when the AIDS was, was repealed but the, one of the little in, interesting insights it showed into the campaign being won by the pro-abortion side and I think you know because they had won they felt they felt they just, were just going to leave this thing because it didn't matter at this stage was when the abortion campaigners were sitting in a room just talking about their strategy. And they were saying, like, look, the truth of the matter is contraception fails. You know, you've got to have to have abortion as a backup. But they were saying, that's not what we say in public. In public, we focus on the hard cases and the hard cases only. Like, imagine being so... Imagine being so cheeky that you run a referendum on those false premises and then you don't even care that it's on the television for everybody to see. That's how cocky you are in relation to the kind of political power and the kind of media power you have in this country. You can openly acknowledge that you set out to fool the people in a referendum and you know there's going to be no consequences for it. And it shows then the yes campaigners, and it's a very obvious stage because you were here, Jonathan, and there was very, there was very little canvassing done with the yes side until the last minute because they didn't have to because they had a meeting in their pocket. But it shows them going to doors where the ordinary Irish person is saying to them exactly what they said to us, I don't really like abortion. It's funny because it's nearly, it's almost, the response is almost the same at every door, I don't really like abortion. Because it's, that was the instinct, I think, that in genuinely been in the hearts of, of the majority of Irish people for a long time and then what was the response from from uh, Together for Yes and of course this response was was then you know emphasized again and again and again in all the TV programs and the media in, in the newspaper reports everything else it was like you know what about the hard cases you know what about this what about that it's so awful what about women who are going to die do you know and it, it was it, it was astonishing, astonishing to actually see it in, in their documentary and astonishing to they feel that they can now expose this without any fear or without any fear of any consequences or repercussion because they know, you know, the media is not going to say, hold on a second, you went out there and openly deceived people about this. So our documentary wasn't our impossible, but in a way, I'm so glad it's been made because lots of people are now saying to RTE, because they're the taxpayer funded station, show this documentary. <laughs> you know, show this one. You show the other one. And, you know, even the um, arts editor of the Irish Times said that documentary was very biased in favour of the Yes campaign. And the head of programming for RTE then wrote an answer to him saying, yeah, it actually was. It was. And it was kind of unfair to the third of the country who voted no and who were completely kind of represented in that documentary. So Gemi wrote and said, well, funnily enough, we've got one right here. I watched the documentary that you're referring to, and, and two things stood out to me. The first was what you just mentioned, which is the extent to which the compassion of the Irish people was exploited to bring in something horrifying. And this is what abortion activists always do. They exploit people's best instincts to bring about the worst things. And that, that is the, the sort of the peculiar paradoxical tragedy of the whole thing. The second thing is watching them in their rooms having these discussions, watching them go to the doors, it struck me how tiny 
their operation was because I had seen, I, like, I remember seeing John McGurk with like two phones on his face at the same time at one point. You know, like, like the, the, the life house was just an absolute beehive the entire time, which just goes to prove your point that they really didn't need to have a campaign the size of the Save the Eighth campaign because they already had the elite institutions batting for them. One of the reasons your documentary is so particularly important is because with this documentary you just referenced, and I think in, in the United States, you know, with the recent miniseries on Phyllis Schlafly, the famous Catholic pro-life activist, with all of these things coming out, we're watching history be entirely rewritten with the sexual revolutionaries as the new heroes. It's the new pantheon of people we're supposed to look up. And the previous heroes, the previous people we respected, now they are the villain. And, and, and the media and Hollywood and the TV industry has these incredibly powerful storytelling tools to essentially recreate the founding stories of our, our respective societies, right? Like the people who were once seen as like, you know, dirty back alley abortionists are now heroes of reproductive rights. While the religious people helping women in crisis pregnancies and taking them into their home, like they're the backwards patriarchy, uh, you know, like it, we're so we're seeing this this recasting, which is why I think your documentary is more important than even some people would say, because if if society is to survive in the long term as distinct and diverse, we need to tell our own stories to each other and to ourselves so that we don't forget who we are and why we did what we did and why we will continue to do so. I think you're right. And I think a lot, a lot of people who watched it said things just like, thank you for setting the record straight. Thank you for showing what really happened. You know, and I think, too, thank you for showing what the character of the pro-life side was. Like these amazing men and women who went out and fought so hard. Like you said, Jonathan, you know, with their, sometimes with their ancestors on the back of their children strapped to their, to, to their front, you know, to go out and fight for the right to life of, of every baby. But I saw some of that, Shafley. What is it, a series? I'm like, what a joke. You know, it, they made her out to be cunning, conniving. And once they, they completely reversed what had actually happened in a, in a TV documentary where Shafley had caught out um, her, her opponent, I think, either telling an untruth or misrepresenting something. And they reversed that situation when they made the TV series. So there was no end to which these very well-funded, you know, um, filmmakers and documentary makers and and... TV producers won't go, I think, to re try to recreate history or to retell history or to completely revise history. And that's why it's so important, I believe, for us with the you know, book Patriots, with this documentary, with everything else we're going to do as well. Like, we, we need to, we were talking the day about the, the need to establish a pro-life archive, you know, because you can't rely on the establishment to be honest about an awful lot of these things. It's, it's so important to have, to tell the story of what happened because it's not just the story of the campaign it's the story of what happened to the culture what happened to the country you know and it's also letting people know this is what happened to ireland so that you can prepare for what's going to happen to your country because we forget of course there's vast swathes of the world where abortion is still illegal and now if you the eye of mordor <laughs> is swinging now from from countries like as soros and those are very open about this in the, in the documents about, that were dumped on WikiLeaks that they wanted to use ireland to persuade other countries like malt and those to be a battering ram for the catholic countries but now i feel like the eye of mordor is going to swing to other countries where abortion is legal to africa for example where women are looking for better maternal health care where they're going to be offered abortion instead. So I think recounting and telling what happened with big tech, what happened um, with the power of media manipulation and everything else like that, 
is, is very, very important. Final question is where can people find this documentary? Everywhere is <laughs> the short answer. So you can find it on all the Life Institute channels, um, on YouTube, on Facebook, um, on Twitter, on Instagram, Telegram, Parler, Gab, Gloria. Also, it's obviously on our website, thelifeinstitute.net. I think my good friend Jonathan Von Maren is going to post all of the links <laughs> underneath this podcast, which, which would be really helpful. And, you know, we'd love people to watch it, to share it, uh, send us your feedback, let us know what you think, and cooperate and other things like that going forward. We're going to make another documentary about what has happened since, what has happened since the Eighth Amendment was repealed, because that's another story that is not being told. Like the, the horror stories, like babies being misdiagnosed with um, a serious disability and being aborted only for the parents to find out there was nothing wrong with the baby. Like the shocking increase in the numbers. Like women being told to flush their babies down the toilet. You know, like the politicians who told us abortion would be rare, just ignoring the fact that the numbers have almost doubled. All of these things that need to be told since the Eighth Amendment was repealed. The lie that women were, were told, this was the most important lie, that they would be safer if the Eighth was repealed and abortion was legalised. And yet we're watching, you know, there was another case yesterday being reported, women dying in, maternal, in maternity hospitals in Ireland because the services have become overcrowded because the government's not doing a good enough job in providing resources to maternity hospitals. That was what killed Savita. But we were told that, that abortion had killed her. And, Part of the, the telling of what has do, happened since the Eighth Amendment was repealed is to also look at that. Did, did, did repealing the Eighth make women more safe in maternal, in maternal healthcare settings? It absolutely didn't, according to the records. Women are continuing to die because the government is not providing them with the healthcare that they actually need. It was nothing to do with the Eighth. But that's all ahead of us. For now, people can go and find Ireland's Fall, the abortion deception. Um, pretty much everywhere. If you look up Life Institute and all of the, and all of those different platforms, you'll find it there. And uh, I hope they enjoy it. Thanks so much for joining me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Neve Ubrain about the abortion deception, the inside story of the fall of Ireland's pro-life law, a new documentary by Life Institute. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. We have conversations with guests on life and family issues every single week, and we do hope you'll head over to the podcast tab on lifesitenews.com so that you can subscribe and have these conversations delivered to you weekly. Thanks so much for listening.